Welcome to the National Presbyterian Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Ray Hilton, and I'd like to personally say how thrilled we are to share our sermon with you this week. If you feel encouraged by our messages, we invite you to hit the subscribe button so you will never miss an episode. Now, let's go to the National Presbyterian Church Sanctuary and hear the word of the Lord. The scripture reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. Now hear the word of the Lord. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember that everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord is with you. Thank you. We want to welcome you again to National Presbyterian Church. If this is your first time here with us, whether in person or online, we are grateful that you are here. This is the first Sunday of Lent. And over the next five Sundays, we will then explore a very specific path. We will explore the Lenten themes that lift up and celebrate God's persistent love. And we will be reading primarily from the Old Testament books of the Bible. And I think that's important to note. What's our goal? Our goal throughout these Sundays of Lent is to provoke within us a yearning, a desire, to love God in a great and a deep way, to know the surpassing greatness of the love that God has for us. And contrary to Richard Dawkins' sacrilegious statement that God is arguably, he says, the most unpleasant character in all fiction, we take umbrage with that statement. The God of the Old Testament is anything but that. God is holy. Yes, God is just. 
But God is merciful and loving and patient. God is full of grace and forgiveness. And God is abounding. As many Old Testament passages say, God is abounding in steadfast love. And so we want every person, and I mean those of you who are worshiping with us online and those of you who are gathered with us here in this space, we want every person who consider National Presbyterian Church to be their spiritual home, we want for us as a collective to, to, to embrace this singular goal, to know and to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is our goal. That's, my, that's the quest we're on. And to help us, isn't it a blessing to have gifted leaders, and we have so many, many of you, gifted leaders, gifted leaders like Margaret Gardner. Margaret, you may not know this, invested considerable time and energy writing accessible content for our NPC small group community. And I'm holding in my hand the first of the small group lessons. And I have to confess, and I think I said it to her, going forward, I'm just going to give her my sermon themes and have her write them and just glean all the wonderful insights. But, but it's really helpful. If John Wesley were alive today and you and I were to ask him, What's your secret sauce for success in ministry? I would imagine he would point to the heavens and say, God, and then he would point outward and say, it has everything to do with my, the classes and the bands that we've developed. And when I say bands, we're not talking about contemporary praise bands. We're really talking about what we today call small groups. He would say that's the backbone for sustained discipleship and growth for the people who lived in 18th century Methodism in England and around the world, small groups were his, his method for spiritual growth and love for God. And that is our method too, by the way. Right now, there are Lenten groups available online and in person for anyone at any stage with a desire. And that's the key. That's the key always. It's open to anyone with a desire to grow in grace and love for Jesus Christ. And so, are you in a small group? They are growing, and we want them to continue to grow. And I thank everyone who has opened their home and is willing to gather over Lent. So instead of going it alone, don't be a lone ranger Christian, and I know we live in a very individualized society where, you know, that's the modus operandi, but in the church, we don't do that. We go with others. We serve with others. We grieve with others. We rejoice with others. Don't go it alone. And I encourage you to sign up today if you haven't already and just try out one of these short-term Lenten small groups. And with that, why don't we pray and then I have some words I want to share with you from, from Genesis. And so, Lord, we do thank you that you have indeed called us into community. And here we are as your children, sitting side by side and behind and in front of each other, watching from somewhere in the world. Lord, we are here before you. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart
be acceptable to you and to you alone. O oh God, my rock and my redeemer, amen. And so I want to invite you, if you haven't already, to open a copy of the Pew Bible, or it could be the Bible that you brought or the Bible that you have at home. And if you would turn in the Pew Bible to pages 6 and 7, because we want to spend a bit of a moment just thinking about what, uh, what was just read for us, the scripture that we just heard read, and we want to just ponder that. And Jane, I want to thank you for reading scripture for us today. And as we focus on these scriptures, I want you to think of two words. There's just two words that you'll hear me going back to time and time again, right to the very end of my, my, my message to you today. And, it, and they're the words chaos, and the second word is covenant. Chaos and covenant. Chaos says something about us, believe it or not. It says something about our human nature. Covenant on the other hand, we'll say something about the nature and the being of God. And that's really what I want to lift up for us today. Those two, and I call them disparate energies. In his letter to the Corinthians church, Paul does something that you and I do many times. Paul looks back in history to his ancestors, and he does that to help first century followers of Jesus understand those two big areas, human nature and the nature of God. And if you want to follow along with me, again, if you have some energy left in your fingers, you could turn to page 931. Just don't lose where you are. Just turn to page 931 in the Pew Bible and look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read the first six verses. And what is Paul doing? He is simply taking the people back to a time where the children of Israel were going through the wilderness. They're out of Egypt. Things are still very tough. They're going through the wilderness, and they have to acknowledge and depend on God's provision, and they didn't always do it very well. And so Paul wants them to look back. And notice what he says, starting in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. He says, I do not want you to be unaware brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they passed through the sea and they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and they all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ nevertheless. God was not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. And this is what we want to hear again. Now, these things occurred as examples for us so that we, in the first century, we, in the 21st century, might not, and there's that word again, desire evil as they did. Paul wants us to see something about human, nature, human nature's wiring. We have this wiring with us that leans more toward the sin and the chaos than we readily lean toward God's mercy. But we see God's mercy in the face of human rebellion. So let's jump back to Genesis now. 
by looking back to Genesis 9, we're doing what Paul did. We're trying to look back in order to understand more about human nature, the world, and God. In fact, all the scriptures we will read, they will cause us to look back. And friends, I'm not ashamed to tell you that there is great wisdom in looking back and learning from those who came before us, learning from their successes, learning from their mistakes, so that we then can integrate that learning and live more flourishing lives before God. So the word I would use to describe these early chapters of Genesis, it's that first word, it's chaos. And you see it in chapter 1 where God is described as creating order out of chaos. God creates an orderly, a sustainable world, and it is described several places in chapter 1 and 2 as good, and then after creating human beings, God then said it was very good. This very good world for all living things, for all creatures, and then at the end of chapter 2, we read that God rests. And let me just caution you, when you hear the word rest, don't have this picture of God turning off the lights, pulling the blanket over and snuggling and going to sleep. When you hear the word rest, don't think of God going suddenly from activity to inactivity. That's not what we're talking about when we use the word rest. The rest that's in Genesis 2 and verse 2 suggests divine enjoyment. God is luxuriating and being fulfilled in everything that God has made. And so the Hebrew word for rest in Genesis 2 is the word Shabbat. God is calling us just as he called generations of his people to steward time. Steward time, brothers and sisters, to be fulfilled, to be nurtured by what God has made. I sometimes wonder, and I'm not a psychologist, but I sometimes wonder if part of the source for our discontent and our unhappiness doesn't come from the price of milk and butter and gas, that part of our discontent and our unhappiness could be our inability to savor, to enjoy, what is before us and around us. For example, savoring friendships. We're so busy, we don't have time for friends. To savor, and I can't believe I'm saying it, I'm one of the Jamaicans in your midst, but I woke up on Saturday morning and I looked out the window and there is that white fluffy stuff on the ground and it was beautiful. I didn't go out into it. I have more sense than that. But from a distance, I was savoring the beauty of the snow on the ground, the beauty of a sunrise and a sunset, the beauty of, and this is a, this is a sparse commodity for 21st century Americans and people living around the world, the beauty of savoring uncluttered time with family and with friends. Sadly, what do we do then? With heads down, we just run, 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 run. We stay up late. We work our fingers to the bone in fear. And it's always driven by fear that we won't make it or people won't think 
we are industrious, they will think we're sloths. And we want to prove to people that we are hard-working people. Go, 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 go. And we have no time to savor what God has made. And then in Genesis 3, this season of savoring and rest and satisfaction was short-lived because the first humans become corrupted by what? There's this word again, by their desire for things that God prohibited. They actually believed that God was withholding God's best from them. And so what did they do? They stepped away from God's order and they fell, and that's a good word, they fell into sin and disorder. And immediately after their fall, the rebellion of the man and the woman in Genesis 3 spawned what I call a radical expansion of evil and chaos. And you see it written large in Genesis 4 where you have the first murder, this unspeakable horror of fratricide where brother kills brother, where Cain, coming out of the same womb, same mother, same father, filled with jealousy, he murdered his brother. And when God said to him, Cain, where's your brother? He said, which brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Things unravel even more. As you read from Genesis chapter 6, where sin is described as worse than the 2020 pandemic. Sin and chaos are rampant. And I want you to see these devastating words where the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great. And there, there are certain words I've just bolded for you so you could feel the force of what God was seeing. The wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts redesire was only evil continually. Friends, there is something that is incomprehensible and maddening about us as human beings. We seem to prefer the chaos and the disorder instead of what God has in store for us. And sadly, when our desires are twisted, And I have to confess to you, as much as I'm standing up here, I'm not above you. I'm above you spatially, but I'm not above you relationally. And I'm grateful to God that he has spared me from many of my desires. And I'm gonna be honest with you, my desires have not always been holy. And I'm thank God, I thank God that I never lived into my desires because if I did, it would have brought chaos down in my life. And some of the chaos that we bring on ourselves, it's irreparable. It's like the hole in the wall. Even if you take the nail out, the hole is still there. Chaos. It hurts creation. It hurts other human beings. It destroys significant relationships like marriage and friendships. 
It eviscerates opportunities. Destroys lives. Why? Because we're made with this incredible gift of desire that can go awry and becomes a renegade and an enemy of God's will for us. And that's what we're reading about in Genesis 6. And the very next verse just really should break your heart. Genesis 6 and verse 6 where it says, The Lord was sorry. If you're here on Wednesday night, we were talking about the word repentance. It comes from the same root word that God repented, if you can believe that. God was sorry that he made humankind. That's how devastating it was. And as a consequence, God says in Genesis 6 and verse 13, enough is enough. I'm going to stop this chaos. I'm going to deal with this rampant sin in a very decisive way. And God sends a flood to blot out sinful humanity. And this is the part about God that many people change the channel because we want a God that we have domesticated and who tells us ourselves and reaffirms this echo chamber about ourselves as to how we feel and what we value and what's important. But God will be God. God doesn't ask your opinion or my opinion. God simply says, I'm going to send a flood. And contrary to some who say that this flood was the whole wide world, I, I don't read it that way. Most likely this was a localized area. Wherever these people lived, it was flooded. But in the midst of all of that, there was one person who pleased the Lord. And we read of Noah found grace, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and in the midst of the world's chaos and the corruption and the violence that was around him, Noah stands, we're told, as a righteous, blameless man who walked with God. Does that make him perfect? Absolutely not. You read the rest of the story about Noah, and you'll see it kind of goes off the rails. But that's God. He chooses the Ray Hiltons and people like you here at National. Look at this verse. This is Peter, first century writing to churches in Asia Minor, in Turkey, and he's also looking back, and he references the story of Noah. He says that God did not spare the ancient world. Even though he saved Noah, a herald of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought a flood in on the world of the ungodly. To have somebody walking with God That is a huge statement. That's what I want for my life. That's what I want for all of us here, that we would be people who walk with God in the season where we find ourselves. God called and commissioned Noah to build an ark and to bring specific people and specific animals into the ark. And then Genesis 7 narrates the people and the animals in the ark and the duration of the devastating flood. It's a long chapter, Genesis 7. You can read all about that. But then the flood ends, and the waters recede, and Noah and his family and the animals, they exit the ark. God then begins the rebuilding and the renewal process. He does it through Noah and his family. And Genesis chapter 8 almost reads and sounds like Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where God is telling the man and the woman to be fruitful and to multiply and to do all these amazing things. There are elements in Genesis 8 where God tells Noah and his family to do the very same thing. It's almost like to renew and to recreate. 
So that's what chaos does. We've seen a glimpse of chaos. Now let's just take a quick look at covenant. And here we see glimpses of the nature and the being of God. Genesis 8 and verse 20, the first thing Noah does in response to God's mercy and deliverance from the flood is that we're told that Noah worships. Noah builds an altar of worship. I like to say that what Noah was doing, he was resting. He was savoring the grace and the mercy of God. Worship is so important. Worship creates space, pushes back against the darkness and the chaos and the destruction that surround us. And that's one of the reasons why I just commend many of you, all of you, who took the effort to come and to be in this space to worship because you're saying, you're saying that sports is really not that important. Food is really not that important. What's really important is that I steward a part of my time on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, to savor and to give thanks to God. We want us, our congregation, to do that faithfully and lovingly and deliberately and consistently, not just in this space, of course, but to see the glory of God, the theater of God, as Calvin likes to say, all around us and to worship God. What is a covenant, though? We, you know, we still use that word. A covenant, as many of you know, it's a formal agreement between two parties. Generally, covenants come with stipulations, and you'll see as we read through these Lenten passages, all these covenants involve the two parties, and it also involves these requirements, these expectations, and they include requirements for either party or both, whether it's the covenant of marriage or the covenant that involves countries or covenants that were formed as land was exchanged, agreements were made, they're all over the Bible. But this covenant is different because in this covenant, Noah, yes, he was worshiping God, but God comes to Noah unbidden. God comes to Noah on God's terms and the obligations of the covenant are on God. God doesn't impose them on Noah and his family. I like to say that God is the actor. God is the actor. Noah is the recipient. And how do we know this to be true? How do we know that God actually took full responsibility for this covenant? Well, we don't have the time to read it through, but again, if you go back and listen to the, the reading as Jane read it for us from Genesis 9, 11 through 17, you'll notice how many times God says, I or I will. I counted at least seven. There might even be more that I missed where God made it clear that this is my doing, Noah. I'm in charge. I'm going to do it. Just watch me work. God then solidified that promise by giving Noah a tangible sign. God gave the sign of a rainbow. The sign of a rainbow. And a sign, of course, is not the thing. The sign points to something greater. The, the, we're not going to worship the rainbow, but what the rainbow reminds us of when we see it every time 
is that God is saying, I told you, I told you, I told you. I'm faithful, a sign of my promise. And I think the, no, I think the, the rainbow may have also been a sign to Noah that was ministering to this man, given all the trauma that he's been through. I think the, 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 the rainbow was a sign of beauty. God says, whenever you see my rainbow, it points back to me, points back to my promises that I will never forget. I will never forget my covenant with you. I will never forget the covenant that I've made with every living creature. When I was in school, they call this common grace. Common grace. The covenant and the rainbow, they're not for any one nation. They're not for any one ethnic group. This is common grace. It's for everyone. The falling snow, it's for everyone. The sun shining down, it's for everyone. The rain falling, it falls on the people who are bad. It falls on the people who are good. God says, this is a sign of my promise that I'll never, ever, ever destroy the earth in this way again. You know, when I was in seminary, I was encouraged by my preaching professor, Dr. Richard Lisher, to see Christ in all the scriptures. And so I've been asking myself as I've been reading all these Bible verses, where is God? Where is God? Where is God in Noah's reading? Tremper Longman in his book, Tremper Longman, a friend of this congregation, in his helpful little book, Reading the Psalms, says that the core of the covenant idea is relationship. And just as God called Noah, saved him, commissioned him, Christ comes to us despite our sin, our failures, and says, I give my life for you. On Ash Wednesday, we stood right here and we broke the bread and we shared the cup and we reminded ourselves of the words of Jesus. This bread is my body that is given for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood that's given for you. Whenever you eat this bread, whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Bread in the cup, signs pointing to the reality of God wanting to be in fellowship with us. This rainbow in the sky, a sign of God's mercy to the whole world. But in a greater way, the cross is greater than the rainbow because it reminds us of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And every time you look up here, when you come to our church, you look up, you see that big, glorious cross. It's to remind us that God's promises to us that he would save us will never fail because Jesus, when he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. Your redemption, your forgiveness is now complete. It is finished. Every time we see the cross, it reminds us that God did not send Jesus into the world to destroy the world, to condemn the world, but Jesus has come into the world so that through him we might be saved. And then the ark also reminds us of Christ. Noah and his family and the animals were told, go into the ark and shut the door. Go into the ark. And it was the ark that saved them from death. Jesus comes to us this morning and he says, we will be saved from death. 
if we come to him. Jesus is greater than Noah. Jesus saves us from the waters of death by his faithful obedience. And if you're here this morning and you would say, Pastor Ray, I, 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 I am yet to confess, fully confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior, I want you to know, I want you to know that the promise of Jesus is for you too. He is the ark of safety to whom we must all run. He is greater than Noah. Noah died, but Jesus is alive forevermore, living this indestructible life, seated at the right hand of God. He fully obeyed God's will. He gave his life so that we might live. And if you're here this morning and you've never confessed Christ or you've walked away, I'm asking you this morning to turn from all that enthralls, all that controls you, because that kind of control is going to lead to chaos and come into the ark and the safety of Jesus Christ. This time of the year, there's a song that I relish singing. It's an old song written by a man named James Joseph Hart. It says, come ye sinners. And the refrain in the song, it is so haunting, sometimes I can't finish it, where the songwriter says, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Run to him. Come to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's people say, Amen. would you pray with me? Out of our bondage, our sorrow, and our night, Jesus, we come. Set us free from nominalism and dead religiosity. Light a fire, Lord. Light fire within us to know you. You are good to us. You are faithful. You are kind. You are just. And you are the justifier of many. To you we come this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We're glad that you could be with us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website at nationalprayers.org. That's nationalprayers.org. Help us spread the good news of the gospel by sharing our podcast with your friends and giving us a rating. If you haven't already, be sure to click the subscribe button. See you next week.